As we begin the message this morning, let me ask you a question to contemplate in your own heart and mind. It's obviously not something you need to answer out loud, but think about this. Have you ever been in a situation in life where people around you are examining your every word and your every move in an attempt to try to find something to use against you or discredit you? Now, I'm not talking about some kind of trivial situation. I'm talking about a significant situation or a serious event or series of events. If you have never been under the microscope like that, you cannot imagine how wearying it is. If you have been, you need no explanation. It drains you emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually. That's what Jesus experienced throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry. It began very early when he cleansed the temple for the first time. Many of the leaders of the people began to question Jesus and examine Jesus and look at him as being suspect. This intensified as time went along when they saw Jesus do things that they didn't believe were orthodox or say things that they did not believe were orthodox. They began to look for things in his life and in his words that, the, that they could use against him legally or in the court of popular opinion. This reached its climax during the last week of our Lord's life. He rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and he presented himself as the Messiah of Israel. Many people gathered around in celebration because they thought he was about to overthrow Roman rule. So they were all excited. This infuriated the religious leaders and the leaders of the people. The next day, Jesus went back into Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple for the second time in his ministry. That infuriated the leaders even more. That was the last straw. They were bound and determined to get Jesus any way they could. Therefore, they began to blitz him with questions and accusations, hoping they could find something in his words or in his actions to seal his fate. That is the picture we see in our text for today. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Mark chapter 11, and follow along as I read verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. Then answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you. By what authority 
I do these things. As we read this text of Scripture, we are looking at events that took place during the last week, the last few days of our Lord's life before His death. That may not be clear at first glance because here we are only in chapter 11 of Mark's Gospel and there are a total of 16 chapters. That is because Mark gives so much focus to the events that took place leading up to and following the crucifixion. Over one-third of his entire gospel is devoted to the last week of our Lord's life and the events surrounding the crucifixion. John's gospel also gives an entire third of the book to cover these events. So it is obvious that the gospel writers placed a heavy emphasis on the final days of our Lord's life, and Mark was no, no exception. This 11th chapter of Mark's gospel opens with a description of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday. That officially opened the last week of our Lord's life. The next day, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it of the crass commercialism that was going on, just as he had done way back at the beginning of his ministry. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were furious about both of those events. Rather than seeing the triumphal entry as a fulfillment of messianic prophecy, they were jealous of all of the attention being given to Jesus. They were also concerned that all of this commotion might result in the Romans coming down on them in some way and changing the status quo. They didn't want that because they liked things as they were. They liked the influence they had over the people. And they liked all the money that they were making off of the people, which is why they were so angry that Jesus had thrown out the money changers. Jesus was a threat to their positions and their influence and their profit. Thus, instead of embracing him as their Messiah and King, they set their faces against him and opposed him in every way they could. That is exactly what we see in this story before us here at the end of chapter 11. The chief priests and the scribes became even more furious with Jesus for ministering in the temple and for allowing the boys present to give him praise, which is described in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 15 tells us they were indignant. That's the word Matthew uses. They were indignant. So it is clear that Mark has arranged his material for us to see the connection between the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the anger of the religious leaders, and the opposition of the leaders. When you stop to think about it, it is tragically sad to realize that in the final days of our Lord's life, when he faced the indescribable agony of the cross, he was wearied and weighed down by the constant questioning and harassment of groups of people who were, who were looking for anything they could find to use against him. But that is exactly what took place in his final days. Now, we don't know exactly what day it was when this conversation took place because Mark doesn't tell us the exact day. It could have been the very day Jesus cleansed the temple, that is, later that day, or it could have been the next day. It's very difficult to pinpoint the exact days that everything took place here at the end because the gospel writers, frankly, 
aren't all that interested in giving us the exact day each event took place. Instead, what they want us to see is what a busy and full and hectic and stressful week this final week was. Jesus did not have any sort of reprieve in the final days before his crucifixion. Ministry was exceedingly demanding and exhausting right to the very end. And by the way, that brings up another question. When was the end? What I mean is, when was Jesus crucified? The four Gospels seem to indicate that Jesus was crucified on Friday and rose from the dead on Sunday. However, that raises a problem for some people because they are aware of Jesus' words in Matthew 12:40, where he said that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As a result of that statement, some Christians and some Bible teachers believe that it is more accurate to hold to the view that the crucifixion was on Thursday or even on Wednesday. Now, it is possible, it can't be ruled out, it is possible that the crucifixion took place on Thursday or even Wednesday. But if the only reason you hold to that view is because of the statement in Matthew 12, 40, that isn't necessary. Let me explain. It is clear from the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Jewish people used the phrase a day and a night even when only a part of a day was indicated. In the same way, they used the phrase three days and three nights even when only a part of three days was included. Genesis 42, 17 and 18 and 1 Samuel 30 verses 12 and 13 are a couple of examples from Hebrew Scripture to illustrate the point. This is seen further by the fact that the gospel accounts, if you read all four of them closely, you will notice that they use the phrases after three days and on the third day interchangeably. Those phrases are used interchangeably. So all that to say that Jesus' statement in Matthew 12, 40 about being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth is not a necessary reason to hold to a Wednesday or Thursday crucifixion. If a person wants to hold to a day other than Friday for the crucifixion, in light of the compelling evidence, there should be additional reasons for doing so. But that's beyond this immediate text. This event that we're looking at here at the end of Mark 11 is Tuesday or Wednesday of Jesus' final week. What Mark wants us to understand is the pressure is building. The antagonism is building. The hatred against Jesus is building. The religious leaders are becoming desperate to find something to use against Jesus. That is what motivates them to engage in this questioning at the end of Mark 11. So with that in mind, let's consider this story together, beginning in verse 27. Mark tells us, Then they came again to Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is either the very day of the cleansing of the temple, later that day, or maybe the next day. But it's been a while since we looked at the cleansing of the temple, so don't forget about that event in the context here. 
So they came again to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? It's important to understand that this was a confrontation. This was not some kind of curious inquiry. The chief priests and the elders of the people had an agenda. They were trying to trap Jesus. Matthew 21, 23 even uses the word confronted. They confronted Jesus with this question. And this verse says they confronted Jesus as he was teaching. You get the impression that they just cut right into his teaching and interrupted him. Jesus was walking in the temple complex, talking with his disciples, talking with the crowd, teaching, and they, that is the religious leaders, confronted him. They thought they were the ones in charge of the temple and in charge of the religious events in the life of Israel. Who did Jesus think he was to come into the temple and drive out the money changers? Who did Jesus think he was to gather crowds in the temple complex to teach the people the way of God. That was their attitude. So they confronted Jesus with the question, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? In other words, let's just state it plainly. What are they saying? They're saying, who do you think you are? Now they should have known who Jesus was because he had stated it many, many times. During the triumphal entry, he accepted the praises of those who proclaimed him to be the Messiah. In addition, he regularly made statements to affirm his deity. Not only that, in Mark 2, 28, he also claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Even greater was his claim in Matthew 12, 6, to be greater than the temple. Added to all these claims is the fact that whenever people hailed him as the son of David, which was a messianic title, he accepted that identification. He never corrected them. He never said, what are you doing calling me that? Why are you using that title? Never did he do that. So there's a sense in which they should have known by what authority he did what he did. He had inherent authority as God in human flesh the Lord of the Sabbath, the Messiah of Israel, and the one greater than the temple. That was his authority. And who gave it to him? The Father did. He made that clear many times. John 5, 19 says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. A few verses later in John 5, 27, Jesus said, The Father has given him authority. So that was the answer to their question. When they ask, you know, who gave you, by, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? That was the answer. He had authority. And that authority came from who he was and what the Father had granted to him. But since they were well aware of all of this and had rejected it, Jesus wasn't about to tell them again. That's not how he answered them. He didn't answer their question by saying, okay, I'll tell you what, where my authority comes from and what authority I have. No, instead, he posed a question to them. 
in verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus could have simply answered their question. There was an answer to their question. But he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they were only trying to trap him and corner him. So he refused to play their game. He turned the tables on them by posing a question to them that he knew that they would refuse to answer. Verse 30, here's his question. The baptism of John. Now he's talking, of course, here about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Jesus really had them with this question. He knew that this question would paint them into a corner. John the Baptist had come preaching a message of repentance and calling all people to repent. All people, Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious. He admonished them to get their hearts right and ready for the king and his kingdom. Those who responded to his message properly, rightly, were baptized as an outward demonstration of their inward change of heart. That was John's message. That was John's methodology. It all centered around repentance and his baptism of repentance. So Jesus asked these religious leaders the question, was this ministry that John had, you know, this this sort of wild man out in the wilderness, was this ministry from God or was it merely of human derivation? Did God give John this ministry or did he just sort of, you know, appoint himself? They couldn't answer the question. Well, they could answer it. But they knew that whatever answer they gave would discredit them. If they said, John's ministry was from God. He was a prophet from God. They knew that Jesus would ask them the pointed question, then why didn't you respond to his message? Why didn't you heed what he said? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you get baptized? They didn't want to have to answer that question because the answer, if they had given it, the only right answer was self-righteousness. Why didn't we repent? Self-righteousness. We don't think we need to repent. Why didn't we get baptized? Pride. We aren't going to let anybody baptize us in water as if we need to take that step. They didn't respond to John's ministry because they felt like they were good enough already and they didn't need to repent. That was the answer to the question that Jesus would ask. So they they didn't want to go there. They weren't about to go there. But their other option wasn't much better. That's in verse 32. They said, as they reasoned among themselves, but if we say it was from men, if we say, oh, John's ministry was from men, he just pointed himself, this is his own idea. If we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. You see, if they asserted that John's ministry was merely human and not God-ordained, they knew they would be discredited among the people because the people, for the most part, were convinced that John was sent from God, which he was. So when Jesus asked them this brilliant question, they were stuck. Either answer they gave would discredit them, which is what they feared most. 
You need to understand that these religious leaders, as religious as they were, they did not fear God. They feared people's opinions. They were the ultimate people pleasers. Instead of treasuring God, they treasured their positions over the people. And Jesus knew this was the case. He could read them like a book. He knew what was in their hearts. That's why he approached this the way he did. He is bringing their hearts right out on the table for honest assessment. And their response said it all. Verse 33. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. In answer to your question, Jesus, was John's ministry from God or from men? We don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus knew that their answer, we do not know, was really, I won't tell you. We won't tell you. We're not going to answer. And that's why Jesus said, and I'm not going to answer your question. You're not going to answer mine. I'm not going to answer yours. Now, this could have ended the conversation. Jesus has successfully deflected their accusing accusations. He has brilliantly illustrated their lack of any authority to question him and examine him. He demonstrated that their hearts were evil and that they were simply masking their true motives for opposing him. They didn't really want to know the basis of his authority. They didn't want an answer to that question. They wanted to reject him and still look good in the process. By the way, beloved, this is the kind of thing people still do today. Understand that. Because they don't want to believe in Jesus, they will look for every excuse to dismiss him and his message. They will hide behind anything and everything they can. They will say things like, well, why should I believe in Jesus? The church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Why should I believe in a God who allows people to suffer? Why should I believe the Bible when it's full of errors and contradictions? Why should I believe in Jesus when all of his followers are so narrow and bigoted? Many people who say such things don't really want answers to their questions. They just want to throw up as many objections as they can to justify their willful unbelief. They like setting up straw men so they look good when they tear them down. People's hearts are no different today than they were back then. The specifics may be different, but the basic issue is still the same. People don't want to believe in Jesus because they don't want to submit to his authority. They want to do their own thing, and they want to do what they want to do. But, but they want to maintain their dignity and look good in the process. That was the issue with these chief priests and elders of the people. The issue really wasn't a lack of evidence. It wasn't a lack of information. This wasn't an honest question. By what authority are you doing these? No, no. The information and evidence were available if they had been willing to be open to it. But they weren't willing, which is why they tried to discredit Jesus. So Jesus turned the table on them to rebuke the hardness of their hearts. As I said just a moment ago, this could have ended the conversation. But Jesus didn't end it at this point. It looks from Mark's account that it ended here. But actually, Jesus went on to tell a brief parable 
to indict them for their hardness of heart. That's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 21. So go back to Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, for the rest of the story. The same text we just looked at in Mark is in verses 23 through 27 of Matthew 21. But Matthew adds another part of the story, beginning in verse 28. Notice the last phrase in verse 27. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's the same way Mark ends his account of this event. But then Matthew adds this extra part of the story. Jesus went on to say this, verse 28, But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. Jesus was a master at using familiar stories to make and illustrate a point. This is another example. This story that Jesus tells here was a scenario to which everyone in that culture could relate immediately. Vineyards were a common commodity in the land of Israel, and some of them were large enough to be considered commercial. Even if they weren't that large, it was customary for the sons to help their father work in the vineyard. So that's how this story opens. A father asked his son to go work in his vineyard. Verse 29, he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. So this son was blatantly resistant at first, said, no, I'm not interested in doing what you want me to do, but later regretted his refusal to work. He changed his mind, and he went out to work in the vineyard. Verse 30, then he came to the second and said, likewise, that is, go work in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. So this was the exact opposite of the first son. This son said he would go and work in the vineyard, but he didn't go and work in the vineyard. He made the claim with his words, but his actions didn't back up his claims. There was a major inconsistency between what he said and what he did, and anyone could see that. So now that Jesus has told the story and set it up, he drives home the point. Verse 31. He says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Wow. You can't imagine how that stung them. You can't imagine how that hit them between the eyes. Jesus was saying that they were the second son in the story he just told. They said the right words. They made the right claims. Yes, I will go in the vineyard. But their lives didn't match what they said. There was a major inconsistency between what they said and what they did. They claimed to be doing the work of the father, but their actions proved otherwise. They were clearly the second son. On the other hand, The people they despised most, the tax collectors and harlots, were the first son in this story. They were the ones who said with their words and by their lives that they had no interest in doing what the father wanted them to do. You remember the first son in the story? 
go work in my vineyard? No, I won't. I'm not, going, I'm not interested in doing what you want me to do. But later he regretted and went and, and did it. So they were the ones, the, the, the first son representing the riffraff of society, the people considered the lowest in society, they were the ones who said with their words and by their lives that they had no interest in doing what the Father wanted them to do, but they were the ones who later regretted that, repented of their choice, and turned to do the Father's will. That's why Jesus said that they would enter the kingdom of God before the chief priests and elders. The religious leaders sounded good, and they looked good, but ultimately, the fact is, they refused to do the will of the Father. The riffraff of society made no pretense about wanting to, to do the will of God at first. They didn't want to do the will of God until they came to repentance. And once they came to repentance, they were welcome in the kingdom of God. The only way, what Jesus was saying, the only way the religious leaders would ever make it in to the kingdom would be to follow the example of the outcasts by repenting. And let me tell you something. This they were utterly unwilling to do. Completely unwilling to do. That could be seen not only in how they refused to respond to Jesus, but also how they refused to respond to John the Baptist. And that's the point Jesus makes in the next verse. In verse 32, he says this, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent or repent or regret it and believe him. This statement really exposed their hearts. Not only were their hearts hard, they were extremely prideful. There was no way, absolutely no way, they were going to respond to John's message of repentance because, now catch this, if they had, if they had responded to John's message, think about this, it would have included them in the same company as these other sinners. They were not about to be seen in that same category. No way. They had too much self-righteousness. They had too much pride. So they hardened their hearts more and more and more as time went along. It got so bad that they were even willing to arrange the murder of an innocent, perfect man. Now, beloved, don't assume don't assume that this kind of scenario is just a thing of the past. This scenario is repeated time and time again. There are people who won't believe in Christ and won't submit to Christ because they are unwilling to be seen as sinners. They are unwilling to, to they, they will not believe in Christ because they are unwilling to see themselves as a sinner. This is especially the case, though not exclusively, but this is especially the case in society among religious people. Religious people convince themselves that they aren't sinners like others in society who are irreligious. As a result, they convince themselves that they don't need to repent. They aren't like the people out there who need to repent. They don't need to repent, they think. That kind of perspective is 
deadly. If a person is not willing to see himself or herself as a sinner, there is nothing that can be done for that person regarding his or her eternal destiny. Nothing. Let me say it another way. Let me be very personal. If you refuse to see yourself as a sinner who needs to repent, this is going to sound unacceptable to some people to say that there's something that Jesus can't do, but I'm going to say it this way. If you refuse to see yourself as a sinner who needs to repent, Jesus can do nothing for you. Nothing. He said so himself. Let me show you this here in Matthew's Gospel earlier in chapter 9. Let's close in Matthew chapter 9. And notice our Lord's words himself, the way he phrased it to address this very issue of those who are unwilling to see themselves as sinners. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, and by the way, this is Matthew's house, just a little background here. Matthew, also known as Levi, as you know, was a tax collector. That was sort of the lowest of the low in society because a person who was a tax collector joined with the oppressors, Rome, and took advantage of his own people. That's why there are so many disparaging comments about tax collectors in the Gospels. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with collecting taxes legitimately. It's just that in that context, Jewish people who joined with Rome turned on their own people and became part of the oppressive uh, regime of Rome. So Matthew is gloriously converted. He's saved and he has a heart for others, and so he hosts this huge banquet in his own home. He pays the, he, he foots the bill for it, pays the expense, because he wants Jesus to reach other sinners, just as Jesus had reached him. So here in verse 10, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that is in Matthew's house at this big banquet where all these sinners are invited, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. And sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is subtle sarcasm by our Lord to say to the Pharisees that they could not be forgiven because they would not acknowledge that they needed to be forgiven. They would not be forgiven because they wouldn't acknowledge that they needed to be forgiven. They thought they were spiritually well. They thought they were spiritually whole. They thought they were spiritually pure. They assumed they were spiritually healthy. And Jesus was saying, those who do not know and recognize that they are spiritually unhealthy will not turn to me for the solution to their sin. And notice how he applies it in verse 13. He says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, please understand something with this verse. Jesus is not implying that there is anyone who is righteous in and of himself. Jesus is not implying that there are those who don't need to repent. He is saying that he came to call those who recognize they need to repent. 
He came to call those who understood that they were sinners, who needed repentance and forgiveness. That's the ones he came to call, not the self-righteous who, would, who refused to see their need. He came to call those who saw their need. Is that you? Do you see the desperateness of your need? Do you realize that you cannot make up for your sin by yourself? Do you understand that you are spiritually unhealthy in your natural condition? Do you recognize that you need to repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? If so, hear me, you are in a very good position. You're in a great position. If you see how unhealthy you are spiritually, you are in a great position because Jesus can help you then. But if you don't see it, if you refuse to see it, Jesus can't do anything for you because he came to call sinners to repentance. Let's bow as we close. We've seen the contrast this morning. The contrast that Jesus drove home in a pointed way. The contrast between those who think they are okay on their own and those who recognize that they are not okay on their own. Those who think they are fine and those who understand the desperateness of their need. Which one are you? Which category are you in? Do you see the desperateness of your need? Do you realize you cannot make up for your sin by yourself? Do you understand you are spiritually unhealthy? Do you recognize you need to repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus? If that is you, if that is your perspective, you're in a great position. Because you're the very kind of person Jesus came to call. He came to call those who see their need, who recognize their need, not those who refuse to see it. So don't believe the lie that says, oh, I've, I've done so many bad things, Jesus could never forgive me. That is completely untrue. It's, in fact, it's, it's basically the opposite. It's the opposite because it's the person who says, well, I've not really done that many bad things, so I, it's not that big of a deal. That's the kind of person that can't be forgiven because he or she won't be forgiven. But the kind of person who acknowledges his sin, admits his sin, confesses his sin, is the kind of person who can be forgiven. Turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Father, it is always a thrill and it is always really astonishing to see and hear Jesus at work. To see how he responded to the religious leaders who came there right near the end of his life and confronted him with the question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And then to see how Jesus masterfully turned the tables on them by asking them a question about John's baptism. And then to see him not stop there but to go on and tell this story about the two sons and to contrast people in society, those who see that they are sinners and need forgiveness and those who don't see they are sinners 
and thus don't really realize they need forgiveness. Oh, what a brilliant, brilliant teacher our Lord was. What a masterful teacher to handle things the way he handled them and to deal with things the way he dealt with them, to illustrate the way he was able to illustrate, the way he was able to tell stories to make the point. And Father, hopefully, hopefully we've gotten the point this morning that we dare not ever adopt the attitude or the perspective that says, I think I'm fine. I think I'm okay. Sure, I've, I've made a few mistakes, but... I'm not that bad. Instead, may we be like the man of whom Jesus spoke in one of his other stories, who when he went to the temple wasn't even willing to lift his eyes toward heaven, but rather beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May that be the attitude, the perspective, the response of every one of us in this room. Father, if there is anyone here among us who has never come to that point in life, who has never humbled himself or herself in that way, to say sincerely, genuinely, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May your spirit bring that man or woman to that point this very day, to humble himself or herself before the Lord Jesus and receive him in childlike faith, in complete humility. We pray these things in our Lord's matchless name. Amen.